Well, sit down if you can, my goodness. My goodness. What a powerful time we've already had together today. Hey, if you're new, if you're just jumping in, welcome. <laughs> this is what we do. This is what we do. We come in here each week, we worship God, we lean on one another. Some of us, we've seen God do some great things this week. Some of us are wondering if God is still there. See, that's the beauty of coming together with God's people is that we can borrow faith from one another when we need it. We can supply faith for someone else sometimes when they need it. So I'm glad you're here with us today. Those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you together today as well. Now, if you're just jumping in, we're in a series going through a book of the Bible called 1 John called In the Light, because we see this phrase over and over in the book, and we just kind of pick it up one week where we left off the next. And so today, if you have a Bible, we're gonna be in chapter three, uh, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put all the passages and all the verses up here for you. And the title of today's message is Four Challenging Questions. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through this passage, and we've broken it up into four smaller passages, and each of them are going to have a challenging question. And here's why. You see, sometimes we read God's word and then sometimes God's word reads us. That's about, that's what's going to happen today. And this passage that we're looking at, these four questions, they're not really tied together. As we've already seen in this series, John can go in a number of different directions in a pretty quick amount of time, and he's gonna do that. So I would encourage you to have something to jot some notes down or, or maybe grab your phone if you would rather keep your notes in your phone. And the reason why is because if you write something down or if you type it out, it's gonna help remembering it. And if we remember it, then we're gonna be a little bit more likely to actually put it into practice. And so we've got a lot to cover today. Let's go ahead and get started, as I said, as we move through four of these and the corresponding questions, starting in verse 11. For this message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. If you're new to the Bible, Cain and Abel, they are the first two brothers. Their parents are Adam and Eve, and uh, they have different occupations. And so uh, Cain is a shepherd and Abel is what we would think of as a farmer. They bring offerings to God and Abel brings his first and best fruit as a farmer. Cain just brings some of the flock. So God's not pleased with Cain's offering. He is pleased with Abel's offering. And the reason why, it's a principle over and over in God's word, is that Abel brings God his first and best. And since Cain didn't do this, God isn't pleased. And this enrages Cain and in his Rage, he murders his brother Abel. And so we haven't seen this yet in the book of John for him to go all the way back to a reference in the book of Genesis. But he's gonna use that as a foundation that we'll come back to in just a second. Verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now this verse doesn't fit what we just talked about. It's actually setting us up for where he's gonna go after he wraps up the whole thing about Cain and Abel. So let's just set verse 13 a second for a side. Second, we're gonna come back to it in just a minute. Let's pick it back up though in verse 14 with this line of thought from Cain and Abel. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death and anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So he's established murder with Cain and Abel but did you see what he did there? He's gonna shift it now and say, hey, if you've got hatred in your heart, that's the same as murder. And if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, this should bring to mind the Sermon on the Mount 
where Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I'm telling you, if you've got hatred in your heart, it's the same. Well, John was one of Jesus's disciples. He was there the day Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. So he learned that lesson, and now he's revisiting the lesson for us. Hatred in the heart, that's eventually what leads to murder, and God looks at it the same, okay? So that's very challenging. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay it on our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And so what are we supposed to do with this language of murder and this language of hatred and this language of loving our brothers and sisters? I think it's the first challenging question we get asked today. And if you're taking notes, I would ask you to jot this down. Am I a life giver or a life taker? Am I marked as a life giver? or a life taker. Now that word Mark is tied to Cain and Abel. So after Cain kills Abel, he says to God, everybody's going to want to kill me for what I did. And God in his graciousness gives Cain a mark. If you've ever heard the mark of Cain, that's where this comes from. And it was a warning that no one was to harm Cain, that even in God's, even though Cain had been a murderer, God is still gracious to protect him. It's the mark of Cain. He's literally marked as someone who had taken a life, and he's marked that way for the rest of his life. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply directly to us, but here's what does. In every relationship in our lives, we are either taking life or we're giving life. Every one of them. There's no neutral. So let's talk about your marriage for a second. That'll be fun, all right? In your marriage, are you marked as someone who brings life to the marriage? Or do you take life to the marriage? It's kind of impossible to please. Your spouse feels like they have to walk on eggshells around you. Maybe you're not married, maybe you're single, but you've got some key friendships and key relationships in your life. Here's a challenging question. When you walk in the room, does everybody smile or sigh? Okay. Are you bringing life or taking life? Here's, here's another thing, man. Are you Eeyore or Tigger? Y'all remember Winnie the Pooh, right? Way too many Eeyores in this world. We need a few more Tiggers. See, you can bring life or you can take life. Parents, like I'm a dad, I got three boys. Let me tell you what I, mistake I make. Let me tell you the mistake I make. I mean, I ain't got all this figured out. Sometimes in my desire to be obedient, what God has commanded me to do as a father, which is provide instruction, provide guidance, provide correction. Those are all wonderful things that God commands me to do. But sometimes in my haste to be obedient to God, my tone can come off wrong with my boys. It, become, it becomes harsh. And see, what happens then is my boys don't leave that conversation going, God, we are so grateful for our wonderful father. <laughs> Thank you that he obeys your word and shapes our lives. They don't leave it that way. They leave thinking, I don't know how my dad feels about me. See, people don't really remember what we say. They never forget how we make them feel. Y'all tracking with me? So we have to be careful about that. I mean, moms, I'd like to think that us dads aren't the only ones that can make some mistakes from time to time. And Morgan and I, we talk about these things. And sometimes as a mom and your desire to provide guidance, it can come across as critical. See, this is really subtle. And we just have to be aware. And it's a really great question to ask in every relationship. Am I bringing life? Am I marked as a life giver or am I marked as a life taker? I think it's the first challenge we get from our passage today. Now, I mentioned when I read verse 13, we were gonna circle back around to it. So let's do that now. Let's go back to verse 13 as we continue today. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. 
So this idea of the world, we're gonna unpack this for a minute, okay? So John's writing this. He also wrote a gospel called John. In it, we find the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. So y'all help me out for a second. It says, for God so loved the And now he's talking about the world again. He's not talking about planet Earth. He's talking about an entirely different idea in and of itself. And if you read through God's word, both Old and New Testament, you're gonna see the world and this concept of the world and how we're supposed to be different than the world and how Jesus died for the sins of the world. And if we don't have an accurate understanding of what God's word means when it says the world, large portions of scripture will be incredibly difficult to understand. And a few weeks ago, we had a guest teaching pastor, Pastor Nick Person, and he taught from a passage that mentioned, again, this concept idea of the world. So I wanna go back to the passage that Pastor Nick shared with us a few weeks ago. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world, see how many times we see it, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them, for everything in the world. And then what Pastor Nick did was focus on these phrases, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but where? It actually comes from the world. So we're gonna focus on the other part of this passage today, which is the world. So we got verse 13 today. We got the passage that Pastor Nick shared with us a few weeks ago. And then I also wanna skip ahead to the end of 1 John. In chapter five, there's another verse about the world. And if I can just be honest with y'all, I don't like this verse at all. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say that, all right? But I don't like this verse. There can be some verses you read in the Bible like, I don't like that. I really wish that verse wasn't there. That's how I feel about this verse I want to share with you. 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are children of God, here's what I don't like, and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. Now, I've seen bumper stickers that tell me God is in control. I've said God is in control. I've saying God is in control. I believe God is in control. So what am I supposed to do with a verse that tells me that the evil one is actually in control of this world? Do you see how understanding the world and what's happening here in God's word matters? So let me tell you what we're gonna do for a second. We're gonna have a mini sermon inside a sermon about the world. Now hold your applause, okay? I know you're fired up, right? We get a mini sermon inside a sermon? Yes, aren't you glad you came today, all right? So we're gonna talk about this, and listen, we're gonna go deep for a second. Don't nod off. We're gonna go deep for a second. We don't go deep for a second just so we can leave thinking, wow, aren't we so enlightened? That is not the reason we go deep. We go deep because sometimes you gotta dig a little bit. Sometimes you, you gotta find the truth in the depth of where you dig, and so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna camp out here for a second on this concept of what God's word means by the world. And we've got someone who's gonna guide us today. His name is Dr. Millard Erickson. Now we didn't fly him in and we're not gonna Zoom with him or anything like that, but we are gonna learn from him. So he's in his 90s now, he's a theologian. I highly recommend any book that he's written. And in his theology book, he has a section where he talks about the world. And I'm gonna share with you four statements that I pulled directly from his theology book because I think he does a fantastic job giving us both depth insight and clarity into what we mean by the world. So there's four of them. I'm gonna read them directly for you and then we're gonna talk about them for a second so we can understand this idea of the world. So here's the first one. The world as a whole organized system of spiritual force is a 
fact. It is the very embodiment, embodiment of evil. It's a pervasive entity that exists apart from particular evil individuals. It is the structure of all reality apart from God. It is a mindset, a frame of reference totally different from and opposed to that of Jesus. Do you see the difference between this and a particular person? We're talking about an entire system. We're talking about an entire social construct. We're talking about the convergence of evil and sin and everything in between that actually serves, listen, as a force that works against us. So if you're moving through this life and you feel a little bit of resistance from the world, here's what that means. You might be doing it right, okay? So this is what's happening in the person behind it is obviously Satan. So let's talk about this more. Second thing that we see from Dr. Erickson is the world is currently under Satan's control that he exercises as a usurper. Although created to serve God because of sin, Satan is able to use the world and its resources to accomplish his purposes and oppose those of Christ. Let's camp out here for a second. This is an explanation of the verse that I just shared that I don't particularly like. So Satan is a usurper. And because of that, everything that is existent in this world is at his disposal to continue to perpetuate evil in this world. And you may have never been told that before. And the reason why it's important for someone to share that truth with you is without that truth, you can call into question the goodness of God. And maybe you prayed for God to heal someone and that didn't happen. Maybe you went through a horrific event in your life and you feel like if God is so good and if God is so powerful, why didn't he stop that from happening? And what I want you to see from God's word is God is not who was behind that. Satan's behind that. He's using all of the resources at his disposal to continue to perpetuate evil. And when we study God's word, here's what we see. Sin actually affected the world. Sin didn't just affect people, it affected everything we see from the book of Romans. So for example, things like weather patterns. Weather patterns in a sinless world exist in a neutral state. In a sinful world, weather patterns can become incredibly destructive. You think about animals. Did you know that sin actually affect, affected animals? We see that from the book of Romans. In other words, the food chain was not supposed to exist. This is why when we read in the book of Revelation, it talks about the lion will lie with the lamb. This is what it's gonna be like in heaven, okay? But because of sin, we have things like Shark Week. <laughs> well, it wasn't supposed to be that way, okay? Little known fact, did you know, more people are attacked by goats than by sharks. <laughs> I think we should have Goat Week. I think that'd be awesome. Not as many viewers, but it'd be a lot of fun, all right? So he's using all of these things for his agenda. The persons and institutions that exercise negative influence in this world are not the ultimate source of the evil that occurs. Behind them is Satan's activity. This one's hard because there are some people and there are some institutions that continue to perpetuate evil in this world. And in case no one's told you this lately, evil must always be stopped. It never voluntarily says, I guess we've accomplished enough. Evil can only be stopped by good. And there are people and there are organizations that are institutions that Satan uses. And there is a time and place, I believe, to speak up and speak out against those things. But let's never forget who's ultimately behind them. And it's Satan and it's the evil that he is continuing to perpetuate in this world. Let's see the third truth that Dr. Erickson shares with us. 
The world is clearly evil. It has the ability to corrupt whatever it touches. Thus, Christians must avoid falling under its influence. Just as Jesus was not of this world, Christians must not be a part of it. This is not merely a matter of avoiding certain worldly actions. A whole set of diametrically different attitudes and values is involved. If we are not incredibly intentional church about how we move forward in this world, this world is gonna knock us down, okay? And it's not just, as, as Dr. Erickson says, about how we can avoid it. And for a lot of Christians, that, that's their strategy. It's like, if I can just avoid the evil of this world, everything will be fine. Probably not, probably not. In fact, if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s like I did, that was kind of the way we were taught to fight spiritual warfare. No, nobody ever printed a handbook and, and gave it out to churches and said, teach them this. It was just kind of the air that we would breathe. And so, you know, it was kind of like, you know, don't go see those movies and don't go do that and make sure you avoid this. And if, if, you, can, if you can just make sure you avoid evil, then that's how you'll keep from being corrupted by the world. I don't know if you grew up like this, okay? That's how I grew up, right? And I'm not trying to take a shot of anybody who helped raise me. In fact, I'm really grateful, but it was just kind of the air we would breathe, you know? Don't do this, don't do that. You know, don't drink or cuss or chew or date the girls who do, stuff like that, right? <laughs> You'll be fine, you know? We can just get them out of the house and they don't do these things. Sorry. But see, here's the problem with that. Like, that strategy does not work today. Not really sure it worked back then, but it certainly doesn't work today. See, when I was growing up, you had to really have a good game plan to find some trouble, okay? You had to think this out. You had to plan it out, okay? You had to seek it out. You had to go find it. But see, things are a lot different now. I don't have to tell you all this, but it is kind of fun to talk about for a second. I got my first email address and cell phone when I went to college. Do you know what that makes me? A relic. I'm a relic. <laughs> like you sound like you're from another century. Because I am. I was born in another century, okay? Like I went to high school. Think about this, parents. I drove all over the place and had no phone. I would leave in the morning and my parents would just hope I showed back up at night, right? That's kind of how we were. <laughs> like Gen Xers, you know, we're not bitter. So anyway, that's just kind of how it worked, all right? They'll be fine. So that was just the world we grew up in. So if we wanted to get into trouble, we had to plan it, we had to seek it out, we had to coordinate, okay? It's not that way now. Trouble finds you. We used to have to, listen to this, go online. Think about, you had to like go on, like online's with you now. It's everywhere. You can't get offline. So it's just a different world, okay? So we gotta have a plan about how we're going to move forward in this world that's marked by the evil around us. Let me give you the fourth. Now, this is the good one. We finally got some good news here from Dr. Erickson. Powerful as are the world system and ruler, they are doomed. The defeat of the world is already determined. In a spiritual sense, the world was judged at the time of and through the death and resurrection of Christ, it will someday be actually judged before God's throne. So here's the truth. We get to walk in victory. We talked about that last week, okay? Jesus has defeated Satan. When Jesus said, it is finished, Satan was defeated, but we still have to deal with all of this evil in the world. So what's happening there? So let's unpack this for a second. Think about the difference between a verdict and a sentencing when it comes to like a trial. So if somebody's on trial for something, and let's say the jury finds them guilty and the judge hands down the verdict. The judge says, I pronounce you to be 
guilty, and the sentencing will take place tomorrow. The sentencing will take place next week. The sentencing will take place 30 days from now. Depending on the type of crime, that determines often the length between the verdict and the sentencing. This is helpful for us when it comes to understanding how this works. So when Jesus came the first time, he handed down the verdict. He told Satan, you're defeated. It is finished. We then get to live in victory. But see, he, hand, he hasn't handed out the sentencing yet. When he returns the second time, that's when he will hand out the sentencing. And so what happens then is we're living in this in-between time where we can be victorious, but we still have to deal with the evil in the world. And we say, why? Did you know they were asking that same question in the first century? One of Jesus's other disciples, Peter, he tells us in 1 Peter that God is not being slow as some of you have been told because they were asking the same questions. Like, why does this stuff keep happening? Why doesn't God just go ahead and send Jesus back because this, this is not good and we don't wanna be a part of this and maybe he's being slow. And Peter says, no, God's not being slow. He's being patient so that everyone has the opportunity to experience salvation through Jesus Christ. See, here's the catch 22. The moment that God sends Jesus, absolutely, we no longer have to deal with Satan using the world and its resources at his disposal, but it also removes the opportunity for people to become followers of Jesus. So we praise God for his patience because it gives us more time to lead people to Jesus. But here's the challenging question I wanna leave you with, with all of this talk of the world and how we actually apply this to our lives today. And again, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down. Am I shaped by the world or am I a light in the world? This world's coming after you. And if I could challenge you for a second, for many of us, we're being shaped way too much by the world. The world has dimmed our light. There's no noticeable difference in our lives between how we act, how we talk, what we do online, and how we act on social media. We have blended in with this world. And the problem is we're being shaped by the world. But see, there's a calling on your life, and the calling on your life is actually to be a light in this world. See, your light shines brightest when it's dark. Hey, students, I get it. It's hard to be a light going to school every day. I get it if you go to a workplace where there's not a lot of light. But here's what I need you to hear me say. God has you there for a reason. And he has you there to be a light. And ultimately, you get to make the call. You get to make the call from this day until the day you're with Jesus for all of eternity. How do you wanna spend the rest of your life? See, there's only two things that you can do on this earth that you won't be able to do in heaven for all of eternity. One of those things is sin. You won't be able to sin for all of eternity. You'll leave behind that sin nature. You'll receive your glorified, resurrected body. It's going to be incredible. But there's another thing you can't do. You won't be able to witness and tell people about Jesus because he'll be there with you and you'll be worshiping him. So in a very real way, we get to choose how we spend the rest of our life. Do we just wanna go through life sinning, being influenced by the world, being shaped by the world, or do we wanna recognize we're a light that's been placed in this world for such a time as this to point people to Jesus, okay? It's a challenging question, but I think it's one we all need to wrestle with, all right? Let's keep going, verse 17. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or, or speech, but with actions and truth. So here's the question I want you to jot down today. It's a challenging one. Am I all talk or do my actions match my talk? It's not enough just to say it. And we're cool with you saying it. Part of the gospel message is we better proclaim it. See, the gospel message is never about what you and I do. The gospel message is about what Jesus has done, period. It doesn't need anything added to it. There is a proclamation. If your kids are in the kids' ministry, somebody's proclaiming the good news of the gospel. If your students participate in the student ministry, the good news of the gospel will be proclaimed. We proclaim God's word. We proclaim through worship. There's nothing wrong with proclaiming, but at some point, all of us have to recognize that if all we're doing is proclaiming in this house and not living it outside of this house, we've missed something. We're all talk. And the last thing this world needs is a bunch of people who are all talk. See, the gospel compels us to actually put it into practice. And that didn't start with this church. That's actually how the church started, okay? And one of the things I love about our church is that, is that we do this. Now, here's the thing. If you're new, we're not a perfect church. So don't hear me saying we're a perfect church. In fact, if you are perfect and you're considering joining this church, don't. You'll ruin it for the rest of us, all right? Don't do that. <laughs> we do not have it all together. But one of the things we try to do the best we can is put God's word into practice. Be action-oriented, do something. And we're entering into a season in this year, the calendar year, where there's lots of opportunities for you to do some things, right? So I've got a few things that are happening up here. We've got a lot of back-to-school serving opportunities. We have the Durham Rescue Mission. We have the Raleigh Dream Center. We have the Habitat for Humanity. Many of you are already involved in these. We've obviously got a team in the DR right now. But some of you may not even be aware of these. You may not even know that these opportunities exist. So we've got a QR code I'm gonna put up here for you that if you're interested in taking that step, you can use that QR code. You can go to Missions, Pam, Kanisha, wonderful team. They'll follow up with you and they'll help you get started. One of the easiest ways to begin to be action-oriented, don't miss this, in your everyday life when church people aren't around is by strategically doing that with God's people so that you gain encouragement and confidence and fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me challenge you, find something you can do. Find something you can do to put the gospel into action in your own personal life or perhaps maybe even with something that we're doing here locally as a church. All right, well, let's wrap up our passage today. It's powerful. It's got some stuff to say. I know you're like, we're almost done. Hang with me because this is about to set some of y'all free, okay? Hang with me here. Verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Did you hear that phrase? God's word's about to tell us how to actually set our hearts at rest. And this is so good because for so many of us, our lives are marked, by, marked more by a restless heart. A heart that's consumed with worry, fear, anxiety, doubt, insecurity. And that's okay. We've all been there. But see, God... God doesn't want your heart to be there. And we're about to see from his word how we can actually set our hearts at rest in his presence. Verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Did you know that your own heart can condemn you? 
Did you know that you can't trust every thought, feeling, or emotion that you experience? That oftentimes in our lives, it's actually our own heart that's condemning us. But here's what it says. God is greater than your heart. He's greater than my heart and he knows everything. So whatever it is that your heart's telling you about you, God's actually greater than that. Let's keep going, verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive anything we ask because we keep his commands and we do what, our, do what pleases him. Did you see that? If your heart's not condemning you, it's because you have confidence. Well, where did that confidence come from? It came from the rest that you were experiencing in God's presence. It's incredible. Now we keep going. Verse 23, this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. See, your ability to love other people comes first and foremost from not listening to your own heart when it's speaking language of condemnation and having rest in his presence and then having the confidence that's what then gives you the ability to love others. We're kind of building on a line of thought here. Verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. Here's my fourth challenging question for you today. Am I going to stop condemning myself so that I can walk in confidence with God? Don't miss this. You can't walk in confidence with God if you're condemning yourself. And for many of us, self-condemnation is where the enemy has us. He doesn't even need to bring anything in the world our way because he's already got us with self-condemnation. And here's the challenge with self-condemnation. It's robbing you from a restful heart. It's robbing you from experiencing the confidence that can come from being one of God's children. And for some of you, by the world standards, you have very good reason to condemn yourself. Some of you have done some things in your past you're not proud of, you're ashamed of, and every time you try to move forward, it's like your heart takes you back to that and says, yeah, but this is who you are because this is what you did. For some of you, your self-condemnation is com coming more from a present failure. It could be in your career, it could be in a relationship, it could be with your finances, but something's just not gone the way it was supposed to and you're dealing with that failure and that voice of self-condemnation, it's just on repeat. You just can't shake it. You just can't move forward from it. So you can't walk in confidence if you're condemning yourself. But what this passage says is that God is actually greater than your heart. And he actually knows everything. And when Jesus hung on the cross, there were some things that happened. See, if you've been in church, maybe you grew up in church or maybe you've hung around church or maybe you've listened to a few sermons, it, 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 can make, it can get really easy to think, yeah, I understand the gospel. Yeah, Jesus went to the cross, paid for my sin, defeated death, walked out of the tomb, 40 days later, ascended into heaven, promised a return. I think I got that part of the Bible down. Let's move on to some deeper things and talk about the real rich theology of scripture. Hear me? It never gets deeper than a perfect savior hanging on a cross for you and me. 
And there were some implications of that. There were some benefits of that for us. So as we prepare ourselves for communion, I want us to talk about that. And I wanna talk about how that relates to this self-condemnation that so many of us are experiencing. In Colossians chapter two, there's this imagery that's very helpful. And it says that we were dead in our sins and the language that's used there in the original language is carrying with it the idea that there was like a document, a legal document that had declared our guilt for not being able to keep God's law. And what Colossians 2 says is that Jesus nailed that to the cross. That when Jesus went to the cross, he took the condemnation from not being able to measure up to God's law. He took that to the cross. That there's literally now no condemnation because Jesus, here's the words, canceled the debts that were being held against you. He canceled them, paid in full. But see, the passage continues. It gets even better. It then says that he stripped away the authority from Satan to stand as your accuser. Did you know Satan has no authority in your life to condemn you? Satan has no authority in your life to condemn you. Satan has no authority in your life to condemn you. But here's the thing, neither do you. You don't have the authority to stand as your condemner because Jesus canceled that debt and he removed that authority. And here's what he says about you. You are worth it. You are worth it. I want you to walk in confidence because you cost me everything and I gladly did it. So I don't want you to be pulled back into your past. I don't want you to live in self-condemnation. I want you to walk forward in freedom. And so as we receive the bread this morning, we remember the price that Jesus paid for us. And as we drink from the cup, we recognize the cost of our Savior shedding his blood so that we no longer have to live from a place of condemnation, but we get to move forward in confidence and freedom.
of the will Remember my faithfulness I've been there and always will Remember my faithfulness When you're standing in the fire Remember my faithfulness That is my desire So don't lose hope Don't lose faith Even when the ground begins to shake Don't turn back Run the race that lies ahead Don't slow down Don't lose sight Even when you're lost and terrified I'm still here Just reach out and take my hand Remember my faithfulness With the woman at the well Remember my faithfulness I will never fail faithfulness when you're stuck in a tree remember my faithfulness come down and follow me so don't lose hope don't lose faith even when the ground begins to shake don't turn back run the rage that lies ahead don't slow down, don't lose sight Even when you're lost and terrified I'm still here, just reach out and take my hand I'm still here, just reach out and take my hand I'm still here, just reach out and take still with you right here beside you calling you closer to me no matter where you find yourself standing I'm calling you closer to me still with you right here beside you calling you closer to me oh no matter where you find yourself standing i'm calling you closer to me so don't lose hope don't lose faith even when the ground begins to shake don't turn back run the race that lies ahead don't slow down don't lose sight even when you're lost and terrified i'm still here just reach out and take my hand Just reach out
Remember my faith. 